Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep but also easy to understand. This is our sixth Q&A episode that we're launching for the month of June. Uh, I don't remember what the date is off the top of my head, but it's the last Friday in June that you're hearing this, so good times. Uh, Thank you for emailing in all of your questions and uh yeah you're it's because of you you're keeping us alive so keep it up yeah so and all these questions again uh if you want to have your questions answered in uh email us at info at grove.church um you can also directly facebook message the grove church page whichever one is easier for you and uh i mean with that being said let's go ahead and get started we actually have five questions this month so uh, a little bit a little bit uh, longer of a podcast that we're going to probably be in for, but it'll be good. I'm excited. Uh, so question one uh, comes in and it just says, what is Samuel's legacy? He leads Israel for 40 plus years, gets rejected as leader, and then becomes a bit of a grumpy old man that people are afraid of. But he is a much loved character. So what's the deal with uh, with Samuel? Uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because this is a little bit more of you know there's not a definitive answer um, but a couple things I would say to keep in mind is uh, first off keep in mind that uh, these books are written with hindsight so mm-hmm. um, even when we're talking about in the book of Kings where it's kind of written as the events are, are unfolding it's being written most likely after like the king dies and then they go through and record all the things that happened in his reign. And so when Samuel is being written, most likely it's at least after Saul dies. Um, And there's a distinct possibility that I would say most likely it's written right after David dies. And it's kind of just a summary of like all of these things that happened leading up to uh, the reign of King David. And so it makes sense that in the season when Israel is, kind of rejecting God's plan as far as judges ruling and they want a king, that Samuel's grumpy and he's, you know, upset about this is happening. Uh, He even says that God's upset about it happening and the people in the moment are upset with Samuel. But with hindsight, seeing how everything turned out, especially with the reign of Saul, I think there's probably a deeper appreciation from the author um, as he's looking back on the life of Samuel than there was even in the moment. Well, also remember too that Samuel, uh, he was a judge. He wasn't just a prophet. I mean, he was the last line of judgment. He was a lot. He was kind of helping lead and, and help yeah. Israel in that transition to kingship. And the final judge. The, before yeah. the And just as a reminder, because we haven't talked about it in a while, the judges were uh, people that God would raise up to rule Israel before there were kings. Yeah. And so it's inter- it's just interesting. I think sometimes um, we can read it and and see that yeah, there was probably some grumpiness because God's people were not doing what what God asked them to do, or they were doing it for a season and they kept falling back in the same cycle. I mean, all throughout Judges, I think almost, I, I could be wrong, and I haven't looked at Judges in a little bit since we read it through the, the plan, but it's like, and again, God's people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh yeah, there's definitely a cycle. And again, God's people did evil. And so it's it's Samuel having seen and knowing the legacy and the history, I, there is, there is going to be some kind of righteous frustration that will come across as grumpy. Um, but at the end of the day, like if you're going to put Samuel in spite of all his faults, he's human. I mean, how many times do we get grumpy as parents or even leaders in church or of, of people who claim to be Christians, but they're doing things that we see are counter to what the Bible should t- tells us we should do? We get grumpy about it. Uh, and so we're human on one side. And so in the midst of all of Samuel's faults, you got to remember, like, if he's, if we're going to put him in a good or a bad leader chart, I think he obviously and certainly should go on the good leader chart. Yeah. If we're but, looking through... Um, and you can kind of, it's a kind of a fun exercise to do with all of the kings and the judges. Like there's ones that, um, again, not perfect, but they're net good. 
for the people of Israel. Yeah. Um, there's some that are, uh, I would say, not so much. Looking at you, Ahab. Uh, so yeah. going on to uh, question two. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says that, uh, quote, an evil spirit from the Lord, unquote, tormented Saul. Words, uh, and he specifies he's reading in the NIV. Is that just a translation issue, or did God really send something evil? So this, I'll defer to you, Evan, because you're the Bible scholar. So I'm the Bible commentator. Uh, <laughs> dear listener, thank you for sending in this question because it let me bust out my concordance, which I haven't used. I think I've used it once or twice since Bible school. So it's really fun. And if you don't know, a concordance is basically a giant book with a bunch of... Oh, Greek he came to my words. desk like giddy. It was awesome. Excited to show me what he opened up. And so he explained so, this to me. So, um, so I Bible did think, scholar Evan. I did think it was interesting because um, in the ESV, which is the translation that I like to read, it says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So I never read this as evil or I sh- I, at least if I had it, had, it hasn't been for a very long time. So I went through the concordance to see what is the word there that's being translated as evil. Um, it's translated as evil both in the NIV and in the NASB, which is um, uh, just a different translation, and then it's translated as harmful for the ESV. And it's the Hebrew word ra or re. I don't know how to pronounce it. R-A, though, is what it looks like. Um, and to give you an idea, here are some other English words that's often translated to. And this is one of the the big difficulties with translating from a different language because um, and if you speak two languages, I don't, um, but obviously it doesn't line up 100% that this, you know, Spanish word means this English word because ideas and language are different. And so when we're translating from Hebrew or Greek, um, one word in Hebrew can be translated, you know, five or six different ways, depending on the context. And so this Hebrew word ra is often translated as evil is one of the, uh, one of the ones that comes up also distress, misery, injury or calamity. And so a lot of times when we see those words in the Old Testament in particular, it can be the same word, just depending on the context, it's translated uh, differently. With that in mind, I would say that, especially for modern English, because evil carries with it um, the connotation of demonic or like Satan or things like that. Like when I think of evil, especially in the American context, there's a lot of the like the really bad yeah. demonic side of things. So I, I think the word is probably best translated as as harmful, which is what um, the ESV version lays it out to be. But re- regardless of, of that, it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about that type of evil, it's not saying evil in the sense of actively working against the plan and the goodness of God. So for instance, Satan, demonic powers, evil in the sense that um, – they are opposing God directly. Um, really, I would say it's more evil in the sense of it's working against the flourishing of, of, of humans. Or in this particular case, um, this spirit is working against the flourishing of Saul. So from a human perspective, it could be, I guess, evil because it's working against you. But from God's perspective, um, it's not evil. And the hard, I think the hard part too is it's um, with the intention of accomplishing God's purpose. And, and I remember when the idea of like my ways are higher than yours. This is a passage in the, in the scripture and I should have thought about where, but yeah, I think it's this, we will not ever fully understand why God has done and allowed the things he's done and allowed. Yeah. But what we do know is God is good, that he is just, he is merciful, he is loving. And, and when we read a passage like this, we may not fully comprehend in our own humanity why God would send a harmful spirit, a spirit to prevent the flourishing of a man 
But we have to trust that there's a plan and a purpose, and God is working out His plan and purpose in His time in His way. And because and this is where we, we rather than trusting in our circumstances or trusting in what we see in Scripture about some circumstances, we get to trust in the God who is the author of creation and the author of Scripture. Right. And also, it's important to keep in mind that uh, there are things that are sinful for humans to do to each other that is not sinful for God. And so I think the easiest example is, um, you know, like if uh, I walked around Marysville just shot people, that, that's sin and that's murder and that's wrong. Uh, but in the old, particularly in the Old Testament, in the New Testament too, like a great example of New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to God um, and it says the Holy Spirit basically strikes them dead. Well, that's not murder. Like God is above us. Yeah. God is God. And so he has power over life and death. Um, and so in a similar way, while it may have been sinful for, especially without the command of God, for someone to be working against Saul, and we even see it with David saying, you know, you claim to kill the Lord's anointed, all these different things. It is not evil for God to work against Saul in, in the same way. Yeah. And I think that that's an important distingu- distinguishing factor as well. The simple fact that God is not held to our standards. God created the standard. And and, I, and so even I think um, in my own humanity, I, I, I don't like that. Wait a minute. Why can't? Why? Why am I held to a different standard than God? Well, first off, I'm not God, and and we have to understand. In our pride, we think we should be on equal footing. We're not. Yeah. First off, we're sinful. Like that. That that's that's an immediate removal. Um, but God in His grace, and so I think that that like even that statement, like God, God is not held to the same law or level of morality in the sense that we are, because God is the standard of morality. So, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think I've heard it said that uh, pride was the first sin that was ever committed. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it's still probably, uh, I think I've heard it's like, you know, the queen of all vices is what it's often called. Um, I think Martin Luther said it's the sin that's pregnant with all the other sins, but, um, deep down in our humanity, I think there's always a part of us that thinks that we know better than God. Even if we'd never say that directly, um, really all sin is us saying, I think I know better than you. Yeah. And so. Well, I remember at a young age thinking, and maybe it was, whether it was a revelation from God or just, it just coming to a conclusion, like. Pride, I mean, I, I don't know if I can go and, and have any kind of scriptural practice, but I think pride is the root of all sin. Because, it, I mean, again, the first sin, but it's me knowing, thinking I know better, and me doing what I want to do. It's all, it's all about me. Pride is, is the self-centeredness yeah. that we all face. So, Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, thank you for that question. It was a great yeah, one. Yeah, it's a great question. Got a chance to bust out the concordance, so good deal. Yeah. Uh, question- all right, bro. Question number three. You ready for this one? Oh, I'm ready. It says, how legit are the army slash population sizes in the Bible? Per numbers, the population is 600,000 or something, and that the occupants of Israel before them was many times bigger than they, meaning more people than there than today. The armies were similarly massive, meaning battles were both sides, uh, where both sides had more than the French did in, I don't even know how to say that word. Agincourt. Thank you. Um, and and even and I appreciate the question that here because there's even some research done to have some validity to the question. He says, my research, Wikipedia and a few other pages suggest the biggest cities of the day were in the region of 200,000 people without skyscrapers. That's quite the urban sprawl. Anyway, long question short, how do you make sense of the numbers? All right. So this is, this is an interesting one. Um, I mean, the short answer I would say is that the population numbers in the Bible are accurate and reliable. And we'll kind of get into a little bit of that. Um, sometimes you'll hit, you'll have people saying things like, um, well, obviously there weren't exactly 600,000 people or whatever it was. And it's kind of like if someone came up to me and said, what's the population of Marysville? And I said, 
Marysville is a town that we live in. If you're if you're listening from the non Grove Church lens, uh, hello Australia. I, yeah, uh, Queenstown. I forgot the region. Shoot, but anyway, um, if someone came up and asked, "Hey, what's the population of Marysville?" and I said seventy thousand, and then they were like, "Actually, it's seventy two thousand nine hundred and seventeen." You liar! Like, well, no, you're not lying there. You're just kind of saying what? like you're rounding off the numbers. How do um, you know that? Most censuses, censuses do it. Again, if someone asked you the population of the United States and you said about 300 million, um, you're not a liar. You're just not giving the like exact to the person number. And a lot of times with the Bible, we can assume that that's what's going on, where they're not giving you um, every last man, woman, and child, but they're giving you the not even ballpark, like a very uh, probably rounded off number. Of- and couldn't you argue – What's going to change from day to day because of deaths and births? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean whatever date the census if there's an, is. If there's a war going on, your numbers are not going to be six hundred thousand. They're going to be maybe less. Uh, whatever, just depends. That's yeah. that's another layer to it too. I think. No, absolutely true. Um, and so, but this did give us an opportunity to look at um some historical data about um the people of Israel and, the, and just the Jewish people at large, which I thought which I thought was really interesting. So, uh, during the census of David, which we see in Second Samuel. There were about 1.3 million men in Israel and Judah combined. Um, so if that's just the adult men who are capable of being in the army, we can assume that the population is somewhere around 5 million people who are living in Israel. Uh, today, the population of Israel is about 8.7 million people. So it's about a third larger than it was during those days. And then keep in mind that um, after – particularly after the temple's destroyed. But when you get the first exile of the Jews going into Babylon and later Persia, and then the temple's destroyed, you see this dispersion of the Jewish people that happens. And so worldwide, uh, there's about 15 million uh, Jews, so about triple the size mm-hmm. of, of ancient Israel, which is uh, not insanely out of line. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, and this is kind of, um, I mean, it's more of a bummer thing to bring, but to bring up, but you can't, it's, it's very hard to overestimate the damage that uh, the Holocaust did to Jewish population yeah. numbers. So keep in mind about 6 million people died. Um, of those people, uh, of the people who survived, a lot of them were older. And so they're not in childbearing ages that's happened. Yeah. And so it's not just 6 million uh, of the Jewish people wiped out. It's also um, their children and their grandchildren. So there's, there's, a very large population of people who do not exist because of that great evil that was committed. And yeah. so just kind of keep that in mind. Um, all of that to say, the numbers pretty much line up. Uh, the battles were uh, very large, but again, it's one of those things where most of the battles that we see in the Old Testament, the whole nation of Israel is together. Like when we look at Joshua, they haven't split up into tribes yet in the sense of they haven't gone to their regions, Mm -hmm. the nations together and they're moving through and they're conquering. So it makes sense that the armies are going to be massive. Um, It also makes sense in the context of Israel's not a huge place. um, The land of Israel, what I I mean by that. And so when they're being invaded, it would not be as hard to rally most of the nation of Israel to get a massive army as it would have been, say, in uh, medieval France, where, you know, Henry V comes in, he's fighting. It's going to be very hard to get all of the adult men in France to go and fight that battle. Whereas in Israel, it's a little bit of an mm-hmm. easier thing. And it was also just more unified in medieval times. You have the feudal system where, you know, some of the dukes and the lords might not have sent their troops. And so it's harder to get an entire standing army going. But that's why, um, that's why some of those things would be different. So hopefully that answers your question. Uh, Evan's a walking encyclopedia. 
Yeah, for, that information. I played crazy. a lot of Age of Empires 2 <laughs> when I was a kid. Does so, anybody even know what Age of Empires is? It's the greatest people, computer uh, dude, game Dude, I remember. Ever. I played it for a little bit when I was a kid. And it's getting a 4K remaster, so oh, I saw that on the I'm news I wonder who's going to get it. All right. Uh, you might. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on to uh, question four. Um, First Chronicles 4, the prayer of Jabez, uh, people or Jabez, I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, people believe slash have written books on its power. Um, and then he puts clearly it worked for I the author. It. They made, a, they made a ton of money off of it. Um, Brilliant. What are, what are your thoughts on the prayer of Jabez? Well, my first thought is I'm going to find a prayer in the Bible to write a little book about so I can make money off of it. And I mean that one, and I think the prayer of Jabez and then in a pit with a line on a snowy day are two examples of like taking one sentence and, and writing an entire book it. about yeah. it. And in a pit, shout out to Mark Batterson. Great book. If you haven't read it, we're not just. It's good time. It, so. It's a great book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my fir- my first instinct with it is I-, I do think it's dangerous to assume that there's some type of uh, a secret hidden power within the prayer itself, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times what you see is um, um, God's not a genie or a a vending machine, I guess, where like if you put in the correct code, you're going to get something out of it, and so it's not like God's you know holding back blessings. Like if you just pray this exact way that I'm finally going to unload the blessings on you. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think, um, and I, I'll be full, full transparency. I haven't read the book, so I don't, I can't speak for what the author writes. I just know I've talked to people about it and that's kind of um, almost the thought process that comes out. So I would say that's kind of a dangerous thing uh, to assume. And the other thing too is um, one of the great mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is not contextualizing the people and so bear in mind that the world that Jabez lives in is very different from the world that we today live in. Mm-hmm. And when Jabez is asking for blessings and when he's asking, um, and it says, I'll just I'll go ahead and read the passage here really quick because it's really short. Um, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers and his mother called his name Jabez because, uh, saying, because I bore him in pain. That's Jabez, a, That's a name worth having right there. Yeah. It's like, thanks mom. Love <laughs> but, you too. Uh, and then verse 10, Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Um, there's a great article about this on the the gospel coalition, which is a website. And that's kind of where I, I, I'm taking a lot of this from. Um, but a few interesting things to keep in mind is number one, uh, Jabez's father is not listed, which is very odd for yeah, a ge- interesting. Yeah, for a genealogy. Um, it just says that he has brothers and a mother. And so we can infer that his dad's not around. Um, and because of that, at this point, um, Jabez, is he's going to have a very hard life ahead of them. And it says that also he's a, a man of integrity. He has more integrity than his brothers. And so when, when Jabez is, is calling out to God, he's not calling out as like, life is great right now and mm-hmm. I want more blessings. He's calling out in the sense of, you know, we don't know what the struggle is with his, what's going on with his mother, but clearly he's had a hard life. We again, we can infer that his father's not around. He probably doesn't have any land or property or things like that. And he's asking God, like basically help me, like give me, give me land, give me, um, and enlarge my borders, bless me, like help, like basically help yeah. me to, to live, um, a good life in the yeah. in the view of a first century, and it says that God grants him what he wished, and so I think we can just get our, our wires crossed on what's actually going on there. Sometimes. Yeah, I think I think it's also important to remember and realize um, 
I mean, the Bible is very clear, and this is not trying to rip it out of context, but it's like you have not because you ask not. And it's it also continues to talk about prayer all throughout the New Testament. Jesus teaches on prayer like crazy. Um, but it, it's this tension that, well, if I pray this magical formula, then I'm going to get what I ask for. And that's not true by any means. And so when we take a prayer like this and we say, well, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray this daily and I'm going to see God increase my territory, I'm going to see God bring blessings, I'm going to see God bring, you know, and, and do an incredible job in answering those, prayer, those prayers, um, like my, I'm not going to have any pain. Well, I, I think we have to understand the first, the first and most important phrase here is that John, Jabez was more honorable. It's the, he has integrity. He understands that he's not, it's not a demand of God. And sometimes I think we take a prayer and we make it a demand. Mm-hmm. God, if I pray this because it's in your word, then I, it's a demand that you now have to answer. And that's not true at all. God already answered all the prayers and all the promises through Jesus. The Bible says very clearly that Jesus is what I now can't remember. All the God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Right. So it's been fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's blessing and promise, but He doesn't stop there either, which is the the graciousness and goodness of a Father. But I also think that there is in humility. I mean, I think that that's also the other side of it. Like He suffered a lot. He had integrity, but it, there's also humility in His prayer. Like it's not God, you owe me this. But God, I, I'm I'm asking this because I, I think there is because he was integrity. He had integrity. He was honorable. That there is a willingness to honor and serve the Lord with everything he's been given and everything is has been done. And we see it in the parable of the talents. This tension of to him who is faithful with the little will be given much. And it's I mean we talked I think about this a, a couple of podcasts ago about like stewardship and the idea of what are we doing with what God has given us. And God is I, I do think and this is where I think. I like when I read this passage because I did read the book a long time ago, mm-hmm. and I remember reading it and having some context to this break the the passage and and understanding a little bit. And it's not necessarily saying God give me more, God bless me, God prevent me from having pain, but it's it's asking for um, God to take what we have and multiply and magnify for His glory, and and I think that's the heart of the matter. I think when Jabez 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 is um, praying, it's it's not something that we can just take as a formula. And that's and that's the one thing I think I would come back to often is this is not a formulaic prayer that is the genie in a bottle or the vending machine I push in I push an A3 and I get my Kit Kat bar. Like right. it's it's the reality is it's what's the heart and our intention behind it. Because Jesus says, if you pray, whatever you pray for in my name, you will receive. But that is also the it comes under the authority of who is Jesus, what's his will, what's his purpose, and dream for us. And so I think that there is there is some of this like be careful about the formula, but also understand that as we continue to be faithful and honoring Christ with our lives, that he will lead us to certain moments in prayer, asking for provision because our hearts are ready to receive what he has to do and multiply and magnify his name with what we've been given, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, so our fifth and final questions today, our final question today is, and, and this is again, one of those really fun ones where um I just never thought about it before. So uh, thanks for sending it in. Yeah, these are fun. Uh, so Moses has two sons. Uh, we know this from the book of Exodus. Why aren't they listed in Chronicles as sons of Moses in the descendants of Levi? Total disclosure, I forgot that he had two sons. I know. Well, you like I I did too. <laughs> like, you just forget about it. So, um, But yeah, it's interesting because when you go to Chronicles and when you look at the genealogies, it says the descendants of Moses and Aaron, and then it's Aaron's sons mm-hmm. who are listed. Um, yeah. But Moses' sons are never talked about. And so what's going on there? Um, this took me on a, a bit of a research trip, which was really fun uh, to be able to go. But um, 
I mean, the short answer is um, they're not a part of the people of Israel. Yeah. And so at at some point in Exodus, we don't know exactly when this is, um, but Moses sends his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to live with Jethro. And the reason we know that is because there's a, a scene in Exodus 18 where Jethro comes to visit Moses um, and it's, he's introduced as, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, and he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Um, what's really interesting is that there seems to be this tension with with Moses where he does not view his sons as being necessarily Israelites. And so there's a um like one of the commands of God for the people of Israel was uh, was circumcision and there was a big um I don't know if I want to call it fight but but Moses doesn't circumcise his sons. Um, and actually there's a passage in Exodus and I know this is kind of weird to talk about, but, uh, uh, basically Zipporah does it. And, uh, um, there's kind of like some, some type of a marital strife going on there. Um, but if, if actually Zipporah actually, uh, saves Moses' life because God was so angry at Moses for not fulfilling the covenant in that issue that he was going to basically strike down Moses in that moment. Um, and what, What's crazy about it is it just seems from the pattern of Moses' life, and again, this is a super open-handed issue because yeah. we don't get a lot of information on this, but it seems that Zipporah and her sons view themselves as part of Midian, not part of Israel. And so at some point, they go back to live in the wilderness with mm-hmm. Jethro to be a part of those people, um, and Moses continues on, not fully into the promised land, we know, uh, but he basically gets to the doorstep. And so there's, I mean, it's just a tension that is actually wrestled with a couple different times. I know towards the end of Moses' life, Moses actually wants one of his sons to be the one to lead the people of Israel. And God says, no, it's going to be Joshua, uh, who is not, who's kind of Moses' spiritual son, if you will, but he's yeah. not um, the actual son of Moses. So yeah, it's kind of, it also bummed me out a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it was, it's, a, it's almost like a sad story. Yeah. I, it's almost like a it's oh man, that's that sucks for them. Like you, you are you are Moses' sons, but you have there's you have no value when when it comes to like the the genealogy and the and the, owner, uh, and the reality. And I think there is some truth to the context of Midianites, and I think um, the genealogy and God's people. And um, yeah, it's it's such a deep and interesting question that um, even as I think about it, even as I was reading it when we first got it, and, and just trying to even wrap my head around it, I'm just like. God, that's one thing I won't ever know. I won't ever understand why they're not in that line. At least this side of eternity. Yeah. This side of eternity, yes. When I, I mean, that that'll be the day when when we we won't have any more questions. We'll just be <laughs> totally understanding all of it. But uh, it is. Yeah, it's a bummer of a it's a bummer of a reality in some respects, and um, and it makes me sad now. So thank you. No problem. Uh, that being said, it is also interesting that um, the people of Midian clearly worship God, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not a part of the Abrahamic covenant. So. Um, if you want to know more about that, ask that question. Yeah. Ask that question. Cause I haven't done any research into it, but <laughs> it's just like, it's a really interesting um, juxtaposition between uh, cause from that point forward, only Israel worships God for the yeah. most part from, from what we're aware of. So um, just a really interesting thing, but yeah. So that wraps it up for, uh, there we go. Good our, questions. Yeah. Th- those are awesome questions. Thank you so much for sending them in. Um, I would encourage you guys again, there's, you know, there's no dumb, well, there are dumb questions, but I, I trust our listeners. It's only what I'm not, asking. Them. Yeah. I trust those listeners would not 
our listeners will not send those in. But yeah, uh, do us a favor, send in your questions. We love being able to research. Um, we love just getting different perspectives too on uh, being able to look at the Bible through a different lens mm-hmm. that maybe we're not thinking yeah. about. So uh, once again, you can email in your questions to info at grove.church. You can also find the Grove Church um, on Facebook and direct message your questions. In that I did way. reactivate one MySpace account, so if you want to send them there too, you're welcome. There to you go. Find Aaron on MySpace. Uh, with that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. Yeah, it was and a great we time. will see you next week.